0: We don't need a new Christianity. We don't need a new morality. We don't need some new innovative system in which to market and to present the church. We just need to be faithful to what God has given us. And the Apostle Paul warns us, in fact, he encourages us that as we progress in these last days from bad to worse, that there will be an increase in deception and the only way to protect and to guard people from it is by building them up in the truth.
1: Hello, this is Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogi is senior pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. The third chapter of 2 Timothy addresses, among other things, the persecution the Apostle Paul received as a believer in Christ the Messiah, the persecution other believers can expect to receive as a result of those who would distort the Word of God. And an affirmation that the Bible is indeed the inspired Word of God. Let's rejoin Dr. Berge now as he reads from 2 Timothy chapter three, beginning in verse 11, where the Apostle Paul talks about some of the sufferings he received and which he advised Timothy about.
0: We read in verse 11 that Timothy followed persecutions and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and at Lystra what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. He mentions in this verse three Galatian cities, Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, that he visited on his first missionary journey and did some follow-up on his second missionary journey. Now, if you remember from the Acts, Timothy met Paul on his first missionary journey because Timothy was from Lystra, and God used the Apostle Paul to lead Timothy Ultimately, to faith in Jesus Christ. His mother, his grandmother nurtured him, and they believed the Old Testament scriptures. But Paul came along, he opened them up, he proved Jesus was the Christ, and Timothy was converted and saved. And it appears from the Acts and from this verse that Timothy, no doubt, witnessed the stoning of the Apostle Paul in Lystra. He was in that city. He preached the gospel. There was a hostile mob. They didn't like what he said. They picked up stones and stoned him until he dropped on the ground and folks thought he was dead. And they left him for dead there in the gutter. But ultimately, he rose up. In fact, it may have been that Paul's persecution was instrumental in leading Timothy to Christ, as Stephen's persecution was instrumental, Christ said, in leading Paul to the Savior. But out of this, he said, the Lord delivered me. Paul got back up, he went on to Derby, preached the gospel there, and more people were won to Jesus Christ. Out of this, he said, the Lord delivered me. Out of them all, the Lord delivered. Delivered me. In either case, Timothy had followed Paul's persecutions, first in watching them and then in participating in them. He had learned that you could not be committed to Paul's teachings and his conduct without ultimately also sharing in his suffering. And then he quickly adds, look at verse 12, And indeed, all, underscore that, circle that in your minds, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, the fact that he was persecuted from city to city was proof that he was living a godly life now i know there are prosperity preachers on the television today that will tell you that the proof of a godly life is a life of ease and pleasure and the road of least existence but paul teaches the exact opposite all who desire to live godly in christ jesus will be persecuted. He is making it crystal clear that his experience of suffering was not unique. This verse asserts that anyone who is united with Christ, who is in Christ, who aims at godliness, will be persecuted by the world. That is, the godliness in a believer will arouse the antagonism of this world. It was true for Christ, and it will be true for us. Remember what our Lord taught us? If the Lord hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you, if you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Look again at verse 12. And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I'd like to unfold that thought just a little bit more for you because it's very, very important. God says that all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. Perhaps you could look at it like this. There are those who are in Christ, but who are not in the world, and therefore they are not persecuted. Let me say that again. There are some who are in Christ, but not in the world, and therefore they are not persecuted. They're in Christ, they're saved, but they're not really in contact with the world. Now, you don't necessarily have to live in a monastery for that to be true. Some Christians, by choices they make, by their lack of obedience, to live and to vocalize with that living the gospel of Jesus Christ faithfully, consistently, time and time again, as God has told us to do, their willingness to identify with truth and a culture that is moving fast and furious away from truth. There are some people who are in Christ, but they will not identify in the world that Christianity And so they're not persecuted. Now they're in a holy huddle. They go to churches that often have their own little religious ghetto. And every once in a while they come out for an evangelical mugging mission. And then they say, oh, we're being persecuted. But for the most part, the pattern of their life is not to identify openly, unashamedly with Jesus Christ. At the other end of the spectrum, there are those who are in the world but they are not in Christ. They may be religious, but they are not born again. And so they are not persecuted, and they are not persecuted because the world sees nothing in them that is worth persecuting. But the people who are persecuted are both in Christ and in the world. Now the first group I mentioned who are in Christ but not in the world escape persecution By withdrawing from the world. And we saw an example of that already in chapter 1 of this epistle. Of the Asian Christians who withdrew from the Apostle Paul when Nero came upon them. Because they didn't want to fall under the Neronian persecutions. And with the one exception of Onesiphorus and his household, they backed off and so they escaped suffering. The second group escapes persecution by compromising with the world. And if we withdraw from the world or compromise with the world, we will not be persecuted by the world. It is those who are in Christ and in the world that will be persecuted. And verse 13 supplies the inevitable reason for this persecution, for this collision that will come. He says, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving And being deceived. You see that word, imposter? It's used outside of the Bible of one who casts spells, of a sorcerer. It's used in early Christian literature of swindlers and cheats. Paul is speaking about fakes, about imposters, men who lack sincerity. And so one translation renders it charlatans. And he says that these men will proceed. The word literally means to advance, but it's a strange sort of advance because he says here it's backwards. It's from bad to worse. They are deceived. They are um, deceiving and being deceived. Sometimes I've been asked by members of this church, do false teachers know that they are false teachers? Well, you know, when a false teacher begins his ministry, very often he'll just compromise the Bible a little bit rationalize the truth of Scripture. Sometimes they'll want to be liked by men. And all a rationalization is is a rational lie. And so when he stands in the pulpit to make people feel good, he is deceiving. But ultimately, if he does that long enough, he becomes deceived. They begin to seduce people, but ultimately they are seduced by their own deception. They become the dupes, the dupes of their own falsity. And so that's why some false teachers believe that they are not false teachers. They believe with all their heart that they're preaching the truth, that you ought to listen to them, that you ought to embrace what they're saying, but their teaching does not go with the plumb line of Holy Scripture. Now, let's recapitulate here for a moment, verses 10 through 13. Timothy stands out against the prevailing culture of his day. He was living the life. He was different from the evildoers and the false teachers mentioned in the first nine verses. He has taken Paul as his guide, and he has followed the Apostle Paul's teaching. And so he is right to do so because Paul argues that his teaching is confirmed and guaranteed by his godly life and his willingness to suffer for it. Now, when we come to verses 14 through 17, we move from Timothy's loyalty in the past to Timothy's loyalty in the future. Again, verse 14 begins with those two words, but is for you. Or you, however, here in the New American Standard? And again, he's distinguishing Timothy now from the evil men and imposters mentioned in verse 13. Remember, thus far, he's drawn a distinction between those who follow their own inclinations and Timothy who follows the Apostle Paul. And he draws another important distinction here that is very important for us to grasp. Look at verse 14. You, however... Continue, and the things you have learned and been convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Circle that word, continue. It may be the most important word in the entire chapter. We, have saw, we saw in our opening introduction to this epistle that the theme of 2 Timothy is the gospel. Paul is in prison. He's about to be beheaded. He's consumed with the gospel. He's preached it for 30 years. He started churches with it. And now his concern is what will happen to the gospel after he is gone. He knows God is sovereign, but again, he knows that God uses courageous men to defend and to preach the truth. And so in chapter one, he says to Timothy, guard the gospel. In chapter two, he says to Timothy, suffer for the gospel. Here in chapter three, he's saying, continue in the gospel. When we come to chapter four, he will say, preach the gospel. Continue in the gospel. He's exhorting Timothy to hold his ground. Never mind the pressure to conform to the world. Never mind that you're young. Never mind that some people despise your youthfulness. Never mind that you may view yourself as timid and weak. Never mind, Timothy, that you may find yourself all alone. Timothy, you are to be different. Now, remember, we noted here from verse 13 that there are evil men and imposters who are proceeding, they're progressing, they're making an advance from bad to worse. But Paul doesn't want Timothy to advance. He doesn't want him to move one inch. Stay right where you are, Timothy. Continue, just keep doing what you are doing. That is the key thing to the whole chapter. And we live in a day when... There are so many who are trying to convince pastors to do something else, that we need to be new and innovative and creative, that we need to market the church in a certain way, that we need to appeal to the world if we're ever going to win the world. The fact is, it's our difference from the world, it's our distinctiveness from the world, our otherness from the world that allows us to be lights, to represent Christ well, and ultimately to bring people to Jesus Christ. So Paul's counsel to Timothy is so different. Don't progress. Just stay what you are. Keep doing what you're doing. He is exhorted to continue. Continue in the things you've learned and become convinced of. By the way, Paul's counsel is not infrequent in the New Testament. And it is especially relevant in our day, not only because of the movements that have entered into the evangelical church, but because of the apostasy and heresy that has come in the professing church. John warned in his second epistle... Anyone who goes too far and does not abide, and here the word abide, it's the same Greek word continue, who does not continue or abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. In other words, there are some evil men who have progressed and advanced so far they have left God behind. He exhorts them in his first letter, as for you, let that abide same word continue in you which you heard from the beginning. So here then is a summons from both the Apostle Paul and John to abide to continue in apostolic doctrine. Timothy, there are certain things that you learned. There are certain things that you are convinced of. Continue in them. There was an article in last week's editorial section of the newspaper written by a gentleman in Bluffton arguing that the church needs to put on a new face. And of course, he was arguing it in the context of the need for the church to be inclusive of the homosexual lifestyle. It's like every day now you turn on the radio there's some new issue in this realm. And again, it doesn't surprise me because the day before he comes will be like the days of Lot. And this gentleman from Bluffton wrote, the truth is that the church is quickly becoming irrelevant to many people today, witnessed by the multitudes leaving traditional religious institutions in search of spirituality. Yesterday's sacred rituals and sermons are worn in of another time. They no longer serve us as a nation nor as human beings. The tired, desperate rhetoric coming from the pulpits each Sunday regarding man's separation from God and our fallen nature, our need for salvation, and the contemptible message of love the sinner, hate the sin, has oppressed enough. No message of oppression will stand in the light of truth. Listen, friends, we don't need a new Christianity. We don't need a new morality. We don't need some new innovative system in which to market and to present the church. We just need to be faithful to what God has given us. And the Apostle Paul warns us, in fact, he encourages us that as we progress in these last days from bad to worse, that there will be an increase in deception and the only way to protect and to guard people from it is by building them up in the truth. And so he says in verse 4, You, however, continue in the things you've learned and been convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them. That goes back to chapter 2 and verse 2. Knowing from whom you learned them. Timothy, I got it from Christ. I gave it to you. You give it to faithful men who in turn can, can teach others to do the same. So remembering from whom you received it, knowing that it is God's word, that there is nothing better, just continue in it. So having urged Timothy to continue, now he gives him three reasons why he ought to continue. Follow closely. He ought to continue in Paul's teaching, which is the Scripture, because the Scriptures are able to lead people to salvation. That's the first reason the Scriptures are able to lead people to salvation. He says in verse 15, and that from childhood, you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Timothy not only learned Paul's gospel that came with apostolic authority from Christ, but in addition, from childhood, he learned the sacred writings. We learned that he learned them from both his mother and his grandmother. And so he must continue in what Paul has taught him, because what Paul has taught him is nothing new. It's in perfect harmony with what he learned from the sacred writings. Paul was no innovator. He didn't feel the need to come up with something new and different and creative. In fact, when he stood before King Agrippa, he said that his teaching was, and I quote, nothing but what the prophets and Moses, that's the Old Testament, nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. Namely, That the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, that he should be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. He begins his letter to the Romans in precisely the same way. He said that what he was teaching, the gospel he gave, is what God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. So, Timothy, you're not to veer from my teaching. Timothy, you're convinced of it. You're convinced of it because it came with apostolic authority. And secondly, you're convinced of it because this is what your mother and grandmother taught you from a child, the sacred writings, which he says here leads to salvation, through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. From beginning to end, the Bible is a book about salvation that comes through faith in the one true Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And so since the Bible is a book of salvation, the whole of Scripture speaks to that subject. All of the Old Testament foretells and foreshadows the coming of how God will redeem fallen man through His Son. The Gospels record the history of how God did it. When God stepped into human space and so we have a record of his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. In the Acts, we see what God continues to do through his apostles as they preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we see in the epistles a description of the one whom we worship, of his divine human person, and of his substitutionary work. And finally, in the Revelation, a depiction of Christ who is co seated with the Father in heaven, and the one who is coming again to judge the living and the dead when he will consummate. This salvation. And so, if scripture is the tool that God uses to awaken faith, to convince the heart of the need for salvation that is in Christ Jesus, it should not be surprising to us that the devil will keep Christians from learning this book. For some of us, the most pointed spiritual battle we will face this week will not be some particular sin, but the devil who will try to keep you from getting alone with God in this book. Because God knows your usability is in direct proportion to your knowledge of Holy Scripture. So if the devil can keep Christians from learning the Bible, that they might not be effectively used from God. And if the devil can keep preachers from preaching the Bible and the unsaved from hearing the Bible or trying to convince the the unsaved when they hear it, that it's not true because he hasn't changed a bit. In the beginning, he said, did God really say that? Did God say that? He questioned the integrity of the Word of God. He will do everything he can to do that because Paul knows and God knows that the Scripture is what God uses to lead people to salvation. So Timothy... It's critical that you continue in the scriptures because the scripture is the tool that the Holy Spirit uses to lead people to salvation. Secondly, Timothy, you need to continue in what you've heard because the scriptures are inspired by God. They're inspired by God. We read here in verse 16 all scripture is inspired by God. Now we need to ask a question what does Paul mean when he says all scripture? Understand, he's not simply referring to the Old Testament. He's including in this context two sources of knowledge that have just been mentioned. His own writings, my writings as an apostle, and therefore by extension and application, the whole apostolic faith all of the Old Testament as well, what he had learned as a child, the sacred writings. So when he says all Scripture, he's referring to that body of apostolic doctrine and the Old Testament Scriptures that he had learned from childhood. That's why Peter refers to Paul's writings as the rest of the Scriptures. That's why Paul can refer to his own writings as the Word of God in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. The apostles were conscious of the fact that they were delivering to man all Scripture. And all Scripture refers to that body of truth, Old and New Testaments, the faith delivered finally once and for all through the apostles, what we call the Bible. Now, these words inspired by God in the New American Standard, three words, five words in the King James, given by inspiration of God, is actually just one word in the Greek New Testament, theop nustos, literally, God breathed. Scripture is the literal breath of Almighty God. Just as my voice is my breath coming from my diaphragm, out of my lungs, over my larynx, through my voice box, articulated by my tongue, lips, and teeth, you are hearing this morning what is Carl breathed. Even so, the Bible is the very breath of God as if God had a voice box and lips. Scripture originated in the mind of God. It was communicated by God's mouth, by God's breath or spirit inspiration, theopneustos, God-breathed, does not mean that God breathed into the Bible life, that is, it was dead, and He had to give it life, nor does it mean, for that matter, that God breathed into the human authors of Scripture. Now, God worked in those human authors. They were brought alongside, Peter said. They were, in one sense, moved by the Spirit of God. But inspiration, uh, the word theopneustos, literally means breathed out. Now, you can get technical here. The Latin derivative of our word inspiration literally means to breathe into. But understand, God did not breathe into the writings or the writings. What was written was God breathing out out of his own mouth the very word of God. And so very often the prophets would write, The mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so it is entirely appropriate to refer to the Bible as the word of God because God spoke it. It originated in his mind. It's spoken through his mouth and he uses as instruments to communicate it human vessels as they recorded scripture. And that's where many people say, well, that's the problem. I believe it originated in the mind and heart and will of God, but because He wrote through men, sinful men, and since we're all sinful, the final product is fallible. Listen, when these men wrote the Bible, they did not suspend their human faculties, but understand God in His sovereignty and providence overrode their fallibilities such that the final product is a book without any mistakes. Now, I have been studying this, as I've told you in the opening part of this sermon, for almost 30 years, and I have not yet found a single contradiction or mistake anywhere in Holy Scripture. I've been privileged of God to learn the Hebrew and the Greek of the New Testaments. I've read it in a multiplicity of English translations. And when people say to me, ah, the Bible, why should I believe it? It's full of contradictions. I will quickly hand them mine and say, show me one. Because I have not found one yet. No, the Bible is God's word. Now understand, God did not mechanically dictate the Bible. He didn't say, Paul, take a letter. And Paul sat there and and, uh, wrote it down. No, as you read the Apostles... As you read the prophets, as you read their praises, their praises, their instruction, their corrections, you can see their personalities. You read Daniel, say, yeah, that's Daniel the prophet, all right. You read Peter, say, oh, that's definitely Peter. You read Paul, yep, that's his vocabulary. That's his style of writing. That's definitely Paul. And the more you read and study these men, they become almost like your friends. I feel like I know the Apostle Paul so well that when I meet him in heaven, it won't be a shock because his heart comes through Scripture. God uses his his personality. It's kind of like Scott, who's up here in that seat every Sunday. I've never seen a man play so many different kinds of instruments that he can play. And each instrument, when it's played, whether it's blown or strung or shaken or whatever he's doing, is, expresses its own unique personality as an instrument. But it's the same man working through each one. Even so, God uses various men, various personalities, and through it all, God delivers his message. So the message is spoken by human authors, and it is as if God were delivering it himself using their personality and writing style. And so the scripture in no way is diminished, nor is it Their personalities in no way are diminished, nor in any way is the Scripture fallible because God superintended the process. And so the end product is an infallible, inerrant Bible. And that's what Paul is teaching here. He says, notice, all Scripture is inspired. All. Underscore that in your thinking. It's what we call verbal plenary inspiration, an important theological term like the word Trinity. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. It's taught in the Bible. The words verbal plenary inspiration aren't found in the Bible, but the teaching of verbal plenary inspiration is. We do not believe in what some refer to as partial inspiration. We do not believe that the Bible is inspired in certain parts but that all of the Scripture, as Paul says here, is God-breathed. Paul is affirming that the Bible is fully inspired and not partially inspired, that it is all God's Word. And you need to understand that because many today will say that the Bible is inspired in parts, that it's not completely inspired, but when they teach that, they're contradicting Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul. you got to be careful. The devil disguises himself as an angel of light. Some preacher can say, I believe in the inspiration of the Bible, but he means so much different from what the Scriptures teach. And that's why we have these major denominations under the umbrella of professing Christendom that are now endorsing the homosexual lifestyle, that are arguing for the ordination of women to be pastors, who teach theistic evolution, and a host of other para-heresies. Friend, that is wrong, and it's flavored by the fact that they believe not in full inspiration, but partial inspiration.
1: To listen again to today's message, Standing Firm in the Faith, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program 2TM7. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogie's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, Pastor Carl will conclude his message, Standing Firm in the Faith, when again we search the Scriptures.